Live and in color from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful Southern California and in parallel from the Turfs Up Radio Studio in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thanks for tuning in to the Water Zone Show this evening. Well, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the Water Zone Show. I'm your host, Rob Starr, along with our major uh, person, who I think is a bigger host, uh, Mr. Chris Davey. Chris, welcome. Thank you, Robert. I've stood side by side with you, buddy. We can we can consider that bigger, smaller thing the next time we're together. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I certainly appreciate you, and uh, you help make the show wonderful, as 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 our next guest will and does. And I'm very happy about that. And uh, continuing to everybody, hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving. Um, I know I did, and Chris did, and, and Ms. Chris Austin did. Um, one of the things that we do want to just mention at the beginning of the show, some of our listeners might know what I'm going to talk about just for a minute or so with Chris. Uh, we had a dear friend of ours named uh, Richard Daigle, and he passed away on Thanksgiving Day. And, and he's been on the show several times. He was the uh, owner of... Uh, uh, a company that uh, did training irrigation, ir- irrigator tech. And uh, I can tell you, as as somebody who knows the industry and, and the technology and all of that, and the application, Richard was a number one guy. And uh, I know he's going to be missed dearly. And I'm going to let Chris say a couple words because Chris worked with him over the years, uh, personally with him, and, and uh, maybe he can share something with us. Chris? Yeah. Rob, absolutely. I mean, you know, the condolences go out to Richard's family, especially <clears throat> his wife and his kids and, and everybody else who suffered that loss from my standpoint. Uh, Richard and his wife, Marcy, a big part of my life um, back in the uh, early uh, 2000, 2001, 2002. I was fortunate enough to um, pair up with those guys. I worked with them for a while, uh, helped at the beginning of Irrigator Technical Training School. Um, they are a big part of my life. They are personal friends of mine. It was extremely saddening news to everybody in the industry. Um, Richard was a stand-up guy. I mean, top number one, top drawer, A number one guy. And so was Marcy. Um, yes. all, all our best to their family. Yeah, this kids and uh, anything we can do to help Marcy if she needs anything and, and uh we do appreciate. Uh, I, I haven't given her a call yet. I wanted to, to let it settle down for a bit because I know it could be overwhelming when you receive tons of calls from people yep. and everything else. And, and uh, but anyway, just for our listeners who knew Richard, uh, we just wanted to inform you if you didn't hear from that. So anyway, yep. uh, we'll move on. So uh, we have Chris Austin, who is uh, the purveyor of Maven's Notebook. Chris, welcome. Hey, how you doing, everybody? Good, Chris. Thanks. So, so- what's What's the latest in California water issues? <laughs> well, hey, you know, we actually have some water today up here in Northern California, at least. Uh, wow. uh, we had quite a bit of rain overnight and uh, throughout the morning. So we're going to cross our fingers and hope that that translates into some, uh, you know, boost in the reservoirs and some snow in the in the mountains. Uh, I said Mm-hmm. Southern California seen any? I haven't seen any out here in the uh, Arizona territory. Well, Rob, I mean Chris, other Chris. Oh, I I I heard that they didn't get a whole lot. Um, huh. I would say they they it looked 
you know, like it was going to come in and kind of be a statewide thing, but it turned out, um, I don't think uh, they got ended getting nearly as much as they had hoped down in Southern California. Yeah, sorry, Chris, I could, I could answer that. We haven't gotten a drop down here. It's a little bit misty right around midday today, you know, kind of like, you know, if you walked outside, you could feel it barely on your skin if you couldn't see it, but no <laughs> measurable rain. Are you sure those weren't the sprinklers to Toro? That could have been. <laughs> or it could have been my recent sneeze since I was, uh, you know, a little out under the weather last week. Yes. Um, but, you know, up here we got a lot, and that's good. Hopefully there's snow in the mountains. Um, I did drive up to Reno. Um, my parents live up in Reno, so I drove up after Thanksgiving to spend a few days up there. And it's interesting, um, as I was driving through the foothills, um, I think the foothills are, are in the worst shape in terms of the drought. I mean, it's almost as if, you had a, a brown filter on the whole landscape. The grass was brown. The trees were brown. Uh, a lot of them were dead. Um, and the trees that, you know, are evergreen were kind of brownish green. Um, it's uh, it, it's pretty bad in the foothills. I think they've taken a, a lot of the, um, probably the worst brunt of the drought. And as I moved up in elevation, it, it did get better uh, in the higher elevations of, uh, in the Sierras, right, you know, north of Lake Tahoe. There's a fair number of dead trees, but it, it's not, um, I didn't see anything that's really, really bad. And it's hard to kind of judge th this time of year because the leaves are dropping and there are aspens and other, you know, trees up in the Sierra sort of interspersed that drop their leaves, but but uh, a pine tree should never be brown. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so we'll see. This drought has been really, really hard um, on, on everybody and the environment and the species, and uh, we can cross our fingers and hope, as we always do, that we're going to have a good, a good winter. And, you know, again, we're off to a pretty good start. Here it is in December. Um, but remember, we had this uh, last year. We had a really abundant December, and then come January, the skies dry up. And uh, that's sort of been the case in, in many of the recent years. And it's, you know, from the long-term outlook sort of says it's, that's what it's going to be. Um, so it's going to, we're coming into a tough year. Uh, the Department of Water Resources released a report that said about 20% uh, of the retailers are, you know, water retailers are going to have supply issues uh, this, this uh, summer. So uh, we're into some tough times ahead. So we can't, certainly can't dial back the conservation now. Although I'm not convinced that the state was really fully uh, into the, into the, trying to meet Newsom's mandate, anyways, but uh, it's going to be harder this year on everybody, I think. With a couple of weeks away from Christmas, how do you think the Christmas tree business is going to do? With you the know, water I, I I don't know. I I there was a story that said you know that the you know, Christmas tree loss and, you know, and, and some places were having a bit of a Christmas tree shortage. 
But up here, if you wanted to go out and, and get your own tree, they seem to have uh, plenty of permits. Um, I just don't, I just don't, haven't had a real tree in like ever. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm, I'm just too concerned about the, the fire hazards, you know, that you have to keep them moist and wet and that, that can be hard. And so, yeah, I just have. And now, now they come with the lights already in in them, so yeah. And that's nice. Yeah, yeah. So, um, anyways, yeah, rolling into Christmas. Let's see if we have some more. Um, hopefully, some more wet weather. At least one more storm. We'll see. Yeah. So speaking speaking of conservation. Uh, they did a study back, uh, actually it came out of the University of Chicago, but it was a study that they did in Fresno. Uh, Fresno had uh, installed a large number of smart water meters on people's homes. And so they tried like this three-month pilot program where instead of using water pops, that drive around and see you on the street wasting water, you know, irrigating your lawn when you shouldn't, when you're not supposed to, and writing a violation at that point. They instead use the meter data <laughs> to tell what, what people were doing. And uh, it, it actually did significantly uh, cut back on you know violations and they did save water by doing that um, but i should also add that uh, they used the water meter to determine if you were in violation and then they sent you a fine <laughs> so um and so not surprisingly they got an overwhelming uh number of calls like almost 700 percent more of, of people calling in and complaining so wow. uh, they they stopped the they stopped the program uh, and they've gone back now to using just regular water pops. So well, if they if, if what happens yeah. with people that have swimming pools, they need to get refilled or or leveled up. How how well, do they know? Well, how how do they know? Well, if you have you know generally if you have a swimming pool, you have a larger pipe going to your swimming pool which is probably on its own meter uh, or in through the smart meter. I would assume. I don't know for sure, but I know that when, um, yeah, I, I, think there's a, I think there's a separate pipe, but I'm not sure. But they can certainly tell indoor and outdoor use. Um, yeah. So they yeah. could, you know, they, and I think what we were talking about was mostly outdoor Right uh, violation. I know um, most most most, pe most pools here in this territory, uh, they just have one water meter. Now I think it's a great idea to put two in, but but uh, most people I know have have just one. And you know if they have a big yard and they water a lot, or they turn that down and fill the pool. I'm not saying a, a completely empty pool, but it, it, it's lowered. It's you know it lowered below the, uh, the filtering system, so they people turn it back on, and they have like ours has an automatic leveler. So it's set for a certain amount of water. And then when it goes below that level, it turns the water back on until it moves the, the little bubble thing up and says, Hey, I, I reached my, my, you know, my level. Right. Right. So I don't know. Do they take that into account? I mean, when they, 
when they go and, and, and tell people to cut back? I mean, I, you I know, thought they, I, do, I, they do I a water budget answer. or something. I, I thought they do a water budget, uh, at least that's the tales I hear. They do a water budget of how many people are in the house, how many pets do they have, do they have a pool, do they have a spa, and they take that all in consideration and then determine what somebody's usage should be or, you know, anyway. Yes, yes. Um, I, and I, I can't speak to the specifics of what data they collected, although I do think that if there is a large amount of water being used, um, it, it would likely be outdoor water use because that's where most of the water use occurs and that they could tell that from the meter data. But I right. can't really speak that far into the specifics. I didn't, I'm not sure all that was in there. But... Um, yeah, it's uh, you know, the whole issue with pools is I think they that you you're, they want you to have a pool cover, I think. Yeah. Um, you know that yeah, then the whole water budget thing that's coming. There's a um, you know, back when Jerry Brown was governor, uh, he passed that law making conservation a California way of life. Do you remember yeah. that? Yeah, Many years ago. Well, we're they're just now um, finishing up the regulations for that, uh, for implementation of that. It takes it's taken what what four coming up on five years to get to this point. But that's because they have developed this regulation with a lot of input from the water agencies and uh, you know and stakeholders to make sure that they're being appropriate and they have a regulation that's implementable. <laughs> Is it going to be retroactive? I mean, if... Oh no. Oh no. Okay. And, and it's, and it's not, uh, I mean, this is the, this has been characterized like, you know, you can't, um, you, you can't wash clothes and take a shower on the same day or, you know, customers will get fined and, and it's not a fining of their customers. Uh, it They set a target, a water use efficiency target for each water district. And then the water district needs to figure out how to make that happen. And if they don't make that happen, or they just say, oh, you know, forget about it, that then the water agency is the one that gets the fine. And then this is, you know, a lot of water agencies are, Kind of opposed to this idea, um, and, and I mean it's easy, it's kind of easy to understand why. But this is sort of how uh, how policy gets done, I think. And and we've done this before in California with the energy. You know, if if people just continue to use more and more and more electricity, we have to build more and more and more power plants, and that's problematic. They're hard to build. They're hard to site because no one wants to be around a, a power company or a power plant. Uh, and we don't burn coal in California, so it has to it would have to be natural gas. And you know, it's just you know, we we kind of California has a sort of policy of, of just not not trying not to keep building all these things. And so they put a, you know, they passed a regulation, I think, for the electrical companies to 
to encourage them, you know, or, or told them they had to cut back on the amount of electricity that their customers use. Well, you know, the electric company can't knock on your door and tell you what electricity you can use or cannot. So they they took the task of, um, you know, energy efficiency audit, um, rebates to swap out, you know, appliances that use a lot of energy for ones that use less, um, solar panels on houses. Um, so instead of building another power plant, those electric companies had to try and reduce your usage. So they can't demand that you reduce your electrical usage. They just give incentives to, you know, try to get you to do so. And I imagine that if, you know, Edison didn't do a very good job of talking us into it, they might get a fine, but um, the the user doesn't get a fine, although you get a big power bill. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we have that out here where they want you to wash your clothes later in the day, uh, or basically at night, and things of that sort. And, you know, so I, I, I see that going on all across the country. That's that's not going to stop. I think it will increase because of the power grid situation, and 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 we need electricity to pump the water. So it's going to yeah. be a full and, circle. And we're having, you know, there's a big worry that if those reservoirs on the Colorado River stop uh, being able to produce hydropower, what that's going to mean for folks all over the West that depend on that power, and it's just not, you know, you just can't necessarily get it from anywhere so it's it's a big concern yeah so anything new happening up in uh, sacramento well let's see um so i'm gonna i have to refresh my brain here um <laughs> oh um Let's see. Oh, hey, you know, there's a the what's what's the western snow season going to be? It's going to suck, folks. Let's just be honest. But yeah, it okay. is. It is. M- move on. Moving on. Um, the Department of Water Resources had a barrier in the delta that they used to keep the salinity out in order to protect water. That what little water is getting extra you know, to protect that quality and also for agriculture in the Delta. And they had it in for two years. It was the first time they had it in, uh, left it in over the wintertime, and now they've taken it out. Um, I'm going to imagine if it's another dry year like everyone's talking that we're going to see them building that back up again. Uh, So we'll see. Yeah. I keep reading the uh, NOAA reports, and they all talk about that. So they're predicting dry uh, as well. So it's going to be interesting coming uh, in the next year. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, Rob, let me just, I'm just going to mention, Chris, because, uh, you know, there's a number of articles each week, each day, actually, in, in Maven's notebook. But I pick out a few that really strike me, and there's one that was a couple of days ago. Maybe it was yesterday, and I think it was in the Grist. Um, you know, the magazine out of Seattle, Chris? Oh, uh-huh. And it was yes. the one about, about the water feed. Uh, I don't know if you got a chance to read that. Great article. I mean, the grist, they, you know, they write some good stuff. And just learned a lot about, you know, things like, like Starbucks is no longer sourcing their spring water in California. 
number of other different tidbits that ca that came out of there. If any of the articles I would recommend from the last few days or last week to our listeners, it, it would be that one. You can get the link for it through Maven's notebook. Um, and I think it's entitled like Water Seeds Abound in Dry California. Yeah, in Dry Yeah, I'm I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, it's uh, we we have an issue with uh, with water rights, not only in the regular people that you know that they highlight here, but also in the ranchers and uh, you know we had some ranchers divert on a stream and they got uh, a hand slap. You know? Yeah, yeah, fifty dollar fine, you know. Well, there's, there's oh, going to be a whole lot more fights about the Colorado River and the water rights for that and everything else coming up in the next year. And it's going to get kind of nasty, but I guess it has to go that way. So, Well, okay. yeah, and, you know, we have the Salt and Sea. They just uh, put up some, the government put up some money for the Salt and Sea, but it comes with a little exchange. Uh, the Imperial Irrigation District can't... Uh, is it has to cut back 250,000 acre feet and some people in the Imperial Valley are are mad about that now again yeah. um, if you remember if you listen to the show i i mentioned that Imperial Irrigation District holds the water rights for one fifth of the flow of the Colorado River right. so when with the Colorado River in trouble People are looking for more from, you know, 3.1 million acre feet, and they're, they'll cut back 250,000 acre feet. So I think people are really looking for more from them, but I don't know what the, I, I don't think they're going to do it without someone going in and taking it, I guess. I don't know. Um, well, we, shall, okay. we shall hear and we shall listen and we'll find out. <laughs> Yeah, I, I imagine there should be some interesting stories coming out of the Colorado River Water Users Concert uh, Conference that's coming up later this month in uh, in Las Vegas, either the first or second week. So. Well, it should be interesting. Just to mention to our listeners, we have a gentleman coming on the show in two weeks. Uh, his name is Max Gomberg, and he was with the, uh, the Water Board of California and became, I guess we call him a whistleblower. And he's going to be on a show telling us all the all the stories that uh, he's revealing as what what's been happening, and what he saw uh, for his term before he uh, he quit. And so that'll be in two weeks. Next week we're going to broadcast live from the Irrigation Association show in Las Vegas. And so uh, Chris, you're more than welcome to call in. Uh, I know usually we do interviews with uh, uh, the attendees and, and the exhibitors, but uh, so anyway, just to let you know that, but. Uh, for anybody who's listening to us now, please go to mavensnotebook.com, become a subscriber, uh, become a sponsor. Uh, you get the latest in California water every single day right to your PC. And uh, see, I don't know, I, again, I don't know how you sleep with all the information you give in your in your, your blogs every day. It's it's amazing to me. But Chris, thank you. We, we, we do appreciate it. Yeah, Chris and I read it every day. <laughs> so. All hey, right. Well, thank you, guys. All right. Well, we're going to head for a commercial, and we got some uh, guests that are coming up, and those are pretty interesting people. So, Chris, thank you very much for joining us. We will hopefully talk to you maybe next week or, or the week after. Uh, depends if you want to call in or not uh, for, for the live show that we're going to do there. So, thank you, Chris. And uh, for all of you listeners, we'll be back in just a moment with our featured guests. So, stick around for the second half of the Water Zone show. All right. <laughs> 
KCAA Loma Linda. The Legacy KCAA 1050 AM and Express 106.5 FM. Water is one of the biggest expenses for communities, HOAs, universities, golf courses, and resorts. So keeping those costs under control, especially when rates are increasing while water supplies are being reduced, are often essential to a customer's survival. Managing water requires multiple skills, which is why it's been complicated and difficult until now. AquaTrack brings multiple skills and technologies together to help large system users conserve outdoor water and improve the health of their landscapes. AquaTrack's professionals are certified landscape water managers and certified landscape irrigation auditors. The company offers audit services, upgrade advice, technical expertise, and water use monitoring. We already manage irrigation water for the largest homeowner associations in Arizona, and we're prepared to bring our knowledge and experience to help others, including landscapers and designers. Give us a call and hear how AquaTrack saved one HOA some 430 million gallons of water and $200,000 in annual water expenses. AquaTrack is Arizona-based, and you can reach us at 623-594-8689. That's 623 623- Five nine four eight six eight nine. Moving up in this industry means getting the most out of each day, so you can focus on growing your business. With Site One, you're in control, and we're here to help. It starts with the right team. Our irrigation pros can help map out a complete, streamlined system that meet any requirements or regulations. And from the first dig to years after install, knowledgeable experts are available in branch or resources are available online to help find solutions specific to your needs. Next, we make sure you have the right tools to get the job done with the largest selection of top brands in the industry, bringing the latest in Wi-Fi enabled controllers, rotors, sprays, valves, and drip components. And because hard work should always be rewarded, you'll receive personalized pricing and earn loyalty points on qualifying purchases to help you grow. You're in control. Site One is here to help. This is KCAA. So welcome back to the second half of the Water Zone with Chris Davy and myself, Rob Starr. Hope everybody's having a great afternoon. We have some great guests uh, coming on now, and uh, there are two gentlemen named uh, one is Dominic Sims and the other is Matt Siegler, and um, they were at the International Code Council. And what we're going to talk about today is pretty interesting. Is basically it's the status of clean water today, and what planning we got to do for the future because I think that's important with what's happening. Uh, first. Uh, they're both going to join the show. So Matt uh, uh, Sigler, he's the executive director for the International Code Council, which means he's responsible for establishing plumbing, mechanical, and fuel gas-related growth strategies and business plans for the organization, along with overseeing their PMG technical resources team that support our membership and industry professionals, specifically when it comes to training, education, and assisting in the adoption of the Code Council's most up-to-date or codes and standards. Chris, take over for, uh, for Dom. Yeah, no problem. I'll be happy. I'll be happy to introduce uh, Dominic Sims. Uh, he's the uh, chief executive officer, right, um, of the International Code Council, 
PMG. So for those of you who don't know, PMG is uh, essentially uh, mechanical and gas. Sorry if I bleaked out there. It's the first step, but plumbing, mechanical, and gas. So and uh, ICC is the International Code Council. So as the CEO, essentially Dom is responsible for all the overall activities, the financial performance of the association, uh, including its subsidiaries, and he'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, he's worked in the building safety field since 1983, 18-year career, um, uh, tenure there, served as the Code Council's Chief Operating Officer and Senior Vice President. He's an expert in the application of building safety technology, codes and standards development, uh, community resiliency, and has chaired numerous national committees and task forces spanning a very wide range of topics related to building safety. So, guys, welcome to the show. Uh, Dom, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Chris. Thank you. And thank you for the nice introduction. Oh, you're welcome, buddy. Are you guys, uh, where are you guys located? Are you out of the Brea Corporate Plaza uh, here in SoCal? Uh, I am not. I, you, you know, uh, especially since COVID, we're, we're a very matrix organization these days. I happen to be um, tonight. I'm uh, coming to you from uh, Birmingham, Alabama. Oh, it's a little late for you then. Oh. <laughs> Off the <of> work hours. <laughs> All right, good. Good yeah. job. And Matt, how about yourself, buddy? Yeah, yeah. And I'd like to echo thank you both, uh, Rob and Chris, for having us on the uh, podcast tonight. Um, I'm calling you from Orlando, Florida. Oh. It's getting getting to be your bedtimes back there. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we, we moved the show up an hour earlier to, to get more people. So that when they call from the East Coast, it's not yeah, 10 o'clock at night. So we, we do appreciate you, uh, you calling in. But start off the the thing here in order in order to understand where we are in the United States from from a water standpoint, I guess we really need to look back on some landmark legislation and how how that got us to where we are today. Correct? Um, I think so. Um, and, and this is Dominic. I'll I'll jump in, um, Rob. Uh, you know we're really fortunate in the United States that we have a uh, we have the um, Clean Water Act, uh, and it was it was first enacted in 1948, uh, and at that time it was called the Federal Water Pollution Control Act, which was the first major U.S. law to address water pollution. Um, and then, in uh, another landmark uh, moment in clean water history, in 1972, the Federal Water Pollution Control Act was renamed the uh, Clean Water Act, um, and that was important because it really expanded the act to include three things. Um, first, it provided a basic structure for regulating pollutant discharges into uh, oceans, navigable coastal waters, inland lakes, rivers, and streams. The second thing it did is it gave the Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, the authority to implement pollution control programs as, and um, set uh, wastewater standards uh, for industry. And then the third thing gave the EPA uh, the authority to establish or develop uh, water quality standards for contaminants in surface waters. So those three things were really impactful. Um, and we're part of the 1972 update uh, to the Clean Water Act. 
Um, it's interesting it's we're having this conversation. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say it's just crazy to think that that was, you know, 1970, 50 years ago. Long time. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, it's, I was going to say it's interesting we're having this discussion uh, today uh, because it, it, it has been just a little over 50 years since the Clean Water Act um, uh, was, uh, was expanded. And we've, we've certainly come a long way, uh, but we, we still have a lot of work to do. What's the what's the status of clean water today in the United States, Tom? Maybe you can give us a little, you know, a little thirty thousand foot view of that. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I th I'm sure the listeners on your program um, hear a lot of, of these stories, uh, but um, you know, we uh, we still have work to do. Um, you know, water is becoming more and more scarce. Uh, as your previous guest just spoke about, um, and the American Society of Civil Engineers in uh, 2021 last year um, provided a, they provide a report card on America's infrastructure, and they gave drinking water a C minus. So that's an indication that that we still have uh, a lot of work to do. Um, you know, considering we have over two million miles of underground pipes in the United States that deliver water for millions of people. And, you know, that, that infrastructure is aging. Um, every two minutes, there, there's, a, there's a water main break somewhere in the United States. Uh, and, you know, six million gallons of, of, uh, of treated water are lost every day due to leaky pipes. Um, so those are just two examples of, of things we need to we need to do to uh, improve our drinking water infrastructure. Yeah, I think most people in the country, you know, unless you live in a cave, right, have experienced all the different water crises that we've been through and the catastrophes and all that, all that kind of stuff. But there's progress being made. I mean, we, you know, we, you know, we see it every day. There's, there's Biden's Build Back Better uh, Act. There's federal funding. There's that kind of stuff. Can you talk about that for just a little bit or maybe Matt chime in if you want? Um, I can chime in. Yeah, this is Matt. Um, well, just like Dom said, uh, you know, we do have some issues, but as you just noted, Chris, uh, we are making progress, um, and and we definitely have. Um, you had mentioned about what Biden has done, um, you know, as regards to federal funding. Um, let's, you know, recently we had the 1.2 trillion in funding made available through the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, um, and this continues to help revitalize our water infrastructures. You also have water utilities now that are reinvesting in their networks from updating risk management plans to better preparing for emergency hazards to investing in technologies such as sensors and water quality monitoring. We've seen a lot of uh, blue algae. We had people on from uh, Jackson, Mississippi. I'm sure you guys heard the stories of what's happening there with water and, and all the contamination water all over across the United States, which people... The majority of people in the United States don't realize how much contamination there is in, in, in water throughout the U.S. And, and I know, you know, the act was 50 years old and somebody's some agency is supposed like EPA is supposed to look, look and review all of these things. And I'm not blaming them or anything, but have, have they really, you know, make, making a, a, a rule or a legislation is one thing, but enforcing it, 
carrying out is another. And and when they pass these bills and, and, and establish them as laws, it, it's kind of hard to know if they really are funded to do this, or is has that has that really been the case of why there's still lots of contamination in in, in our waters? Is because there really was no money, but yet there was a lot that says you really needed to fix it. In your opinion, um, Rob, I Dom, I can oh, go go ahead. Go ahead, Matt. Well, I was, sure? was going to okay. say that I was going to say that there's. Um, I think I think I think your observation is uh, is important in that, um, you know, we we sort of take water for granted a little bit. Um, you know, when the electricity goes out, it's pretty evident, but. When water isn't safe, it's not as evident. Uh, as an example, you mentioned Flint, Michigan, and Jackson, Mississippi. And it seems like it takes a long time for a crisis to occur. There's like a long lead time. And our water needs and our water infrastructure is is just massive. Right. Um, so it, it, I think the, these problems could actually sometimes they could seem pretty daunting. Um, but if we if we establish goals and we continue to work towards those goals, you know, I'm confident that that we're gonna we're gonna achieve them uh, at you know at some future point. I I agree with you with that. Do you, do you think that the people who legislate all of this will really enforce those those issues and enforce the surveillance of it? And you know, I, I know it takes time and money. To fix everything, mm-hmm. we, we we all know that. But uh, how, have, in your opinion, are they better than they have been for the last fifty years? Do you think this is a turning point, maybe? Because again, it's kind of hard to think that in this day and era, and especially in the best country in the world, people can't get clean water. <laughs> That's pretty scary. <laughs> right, right. No, absolutely. It's it's uh, you know I have a, a go off offline just a little bit. Uh, I uh, spent about twenty years in South Florida and. You know, experienced a lot of hurricanes, and I used to think it was bad when the electricity went out. But one time, our water also went out. <laughs> you talk about a real problem. Water is essential to life, as you know. Right. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm. You know, the the public, I believe, is developing a new awareness of our water challenges. And I, you know, my sense is that they will, they will, um, you know, put the put the proper emphasis on it uh, and, you know, make sure that our our elected officials and our regulatory community, and in our case, the International Code Council, um, codes and standards developers are continuing to uh, to work hard to make sure there's adequate supply of safe drinking water. Right. Well, I know your, your, your uh, association does really, really good work. We I don't. I don't know if it was ever mentioned to you before, but we utilize your services uh, for our, some of our products, our irrigation products, to help certify them with the EPA. So uh, you guys do great work, yeah. and uh, we, we support you a lot. Chris, I'll let you ask a couple of questions here. Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I'm going to I'm going to ask you guys if we can take a little global perspective, if you will. And Matt, I know you had a recent trip to Israel, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. But we, well, what kind of things can we learn from? Uh, from other countries, right? We know that we're not the only ones who experience w- water issues. So uh, maybe you can give some insight to our listeners on on how we can learn from other countries. Sure, I'd be glad to. And yes, you are correct. I did have the, the uh, great opportunity to go to Israel, and I was a part of a, a U.S. delegation. 
Um, it's it, to kind of highlight where how serious regulators are getting in the face of water crisis in this country. Um, the Code Council was part of this delegation and include many water utilities, several from California. There were some from Arizona, uh, New York City, uh, in the middle of the country. Uh, we had federal agencies like uh, EPA, uh, Department of Agriculture, and the State Department. Uh, and then there were others like the Code Council that were all part of this delegation. There was a little over 40 of us that went over to the country of Israel to basically just learn about what they're doing over there, uh, try to gather the knowledge and, and what they're doing to implement uh, uh, water surplus practices, uh, where a country, I mean, I think the thing you have to look at Israel is Israel's uh, a little bit over 75 years old now. And currently, here, this primarily desert nation is considered a water surplus country today. And they've done this in 75 years, which is really remarkable. Um, and as I said, the delegation went over there, a broad base of us. And there was three things that I kind of took away that I think we could really learn from Israel. I, I'd say the first thing you need to know about Israel is the public owns the water and the government regulates the use of it. Uh, and that's in accordance with the country's water law that was established early on back in the 1950s. Uh, what that means is that you don't own any body of water or water source that's located on your property like a pond. Um, here in the U.S., um, if a body of water exists on your property, it's generally considered yours. Well, in Israel, they share all the water amongst the public, and it's for the greater good in that country. And it's really working. Um as far as another item I pull uh, that I kind of glean from my experiences, consumers over there actually pay the real cost of water. Uh, and what that means is, is they're not only paying for the water they use, like we do here in the U.S., but they're paying for everything involved in delivering water to their homes, businesses, and communities. Um, what this does is it allows the water authority who oversees all water distribution in the nation of Israel the funding it needs to replace pipes, meters, you name it, that go bad, or at least replace piping at least every 17 years or six years for water meters, whichever comes first. Here in the U.S., because consumers only pay for the water they use, the financial burden to replace pipes primarily falls on either the utility or the government, which is why we have so many outdated water service pipes throughout this country, and with several of those pipes containing high levels of lead, as you mentioned, Flint. Um, so that, that was one. And then I'd say probably the final thing that I gathered from Israel was sewage or wastewater is considered a source of water to be treated and reused. They do not waste a drop of water <laughs> over in Israel. They reuse it all. Yeah, we, we had the Consulate General of Israel on and also the uh, ex Executive Director or CEO of uh, IDC, which is a very large desalt company. You guys probably bumped into them at one time or another. But yeah, it's amazing how even, even their biologists are looking in agriculture how to use uh, water that's high in, in salinity uh, to still be able to utilize that. But I was, I was amazed they had told us, a gentleman, I don't know if you're familiar with, named Seth Siegel. Uh, he, he, mm -hmm. he's, yeah, he's an author, and he, we, we talked to him several times, and he was telling us how that most people don't know that Israel sells water to Iran. Yep. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, that's, I guess that's their secret weapon. If they get really ticked off at somebody, they'll just turn their water off instead of sending a, sending a jet over there. But uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing. And, and But people are conditioned differently. They understand the value of water. I always joke with, with Chris Davey about when you go get your gas tanks filled, you stand there, you watch the meter, you know exactly how much you're putting into your car. With water, you probably don't know until you get your bill. Now, there's a lot of automatic meter readers that uh, are in houses today, and, and you can get online and read that back. But I think that's that's a good visual tool for people to see that. Hmm. And uh, I think that's going to be more predominant in the, in the coming years here, at least in, in the States. Um, you mentioned they, they use reused water for their agriculture, and, and uh, I think that's a good thing. Do you think they should do that here more? Oh, oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I definitely think there's opportunity for using water here. But I will say, first thing we need to do is we need to come up with some federal water quality standards for non-potable applications or for when we use treated wastewater, similar to what we already have in place for potable water in this country. Um, and, and, and why I say that is currently regulations for treating wastewater are established on either the local or the state levels, not the federal level. And that's really problematic uh, for a lot of people involved. Um, in agriculture, it depends where you're at. Um, you know, it, it, you don't have consistent standards in this country for treating water, non-potable water, that is, to prevent harm to plants and soils, maintain food safety, and protect the health of farm workers across the country that are uniform. Um, when you're talking about indoor applications, like, you know, in California, that's really being pushed right now about uh, the fact that we want to bring more, reuse more water indoors for toilet, urinal flushing, priming of traps with floor drains and so forth. But the problem is, is it's it's kind of the, <laughs> I hate to say it, the wild, wild west, because every jurisdiction, every state is establishing their own requirements. And that's really problematic when you think of, yes, we do want to protect the, uh, the, the people that are in the structures. But what about what happens to the system? That never gets talked about. And, and I think that would be more focused if we had federal or national standards to address this. Again, it need to be done on an uh, application basis. You would treat agriculture different than you would treat indoor. But it's something that I did notice over in Israel that they do have national standards uh, for agriculture. Uh, right now, they don't have plans for bringing water reuse into structures because they don't need it. They uh, basically get most of their potable water from desalinization. Yeah. Well, Don, let, let me ask you this question, Don, because I know that, you know, a big part of the, as I said in the introduction for you, a big part of you, uh, of your guys' work is support to the industry. So, you know, kind of tell us, if you will, what's the, what is the ICC, the Code Council, doing um, to address water reuse in the United States? I know you guys are, are working on some things and a working group put together. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I'd be happy to, Chris. Um, you know, it, sort of adding on to what Matt mentioned, um, it's it's you know the, the the mission of the Code Council has always been development of consistent, coordinated codes and standards uh, to support uh, federal, state, and local government application of uh, of various programs like like water safety. Um, but, you know, as, again, as Matt said, the, um, 
when there is a patchwork, it makes it very, very difficult for system operators, for manufacturers, and for the industry in general to um, to comply. Uh, and it, it, you know, it actually, in some sense, makes makes things less safe. So we really need a collaboration from all levels and all interested stakeholders to develop um, common uh, national standards um, in order to address some of these problems. And we need to embrace, you know, help the public learn um, that reclaimed water can be uh, can be just as safe. Um, as the tap water they're drinking today. Uh, and we also need to, uh, you know, expand our emphasis on, on desalinization. So our working group, and, and Matt will be uh, leading our working group and can probably tell you a little bit more about the current status. Uh, our working group is, is, uh, is going to be um, helping the Code Council identify areas where we should be focusing to one, help change public perception, and two, develop um, best practices and consistent codes and standards that can be utilized uh, across the U.S. Matt, what's holding us back, buddy? What's holding us back? Um, I would say <laughs> just, you know, I think Dom, <laughs> I think he hit the nail on the head. Um, I, I personally think when you look at why we're not doing it here, it's about education. Um, education is key for everything. And I think there's just this misinformation out there of, 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 or the stigma about wastewater reuse that's really not true. Um, you know, whether consumers realize or not, they're already drinking, cooking, and bathing with treated wastewater. What I mean by that is that the existing water that we have on this planet that's been here for millions of years is continuously recycled through our natural water cycle. We've been doing it, <laughs> and and it's something that now we have the ability mechanically to treat wastewater even better than the, the tap water that comes out of our faucets. In fact, Stanford University just recently did a study to compare basically wastewater treated at potable reuse treatment plants to common sources of tap water like rivers and groundwater, and what they found out is the end result was is the uh, treated wastewater was cleaner and less toxic than the sources from which rivers, groundwater that we get our tap water from. It was quite remarkable, but we have the mechanical means now to make it even cleaner, as Dom indicated. Is it, just, just a technical question here. Is, is it better to have ultra-pure water, or do we still need to have some level of, I'll use the word contaminant, that may be the wrong word here, uh, to help our bodies be immune to other things. I was just curious on that. Oh, wow. That's a <laughs> yeah. I mean, wow. I, I, I didn't mean to throw that in, but, but I was just thinking about, as you said that, I, I agree with everything that you said, uh, but but sometimes, you know, uh, if you make something too pure, don't we need, because uh, I know in some treatment plants, they add stuff back into it. Uh, yes. You know, yes. Yeah. So, I, so I, I was wondering if it was so pure, if the water becomes so pure, because we had a, a company on our show that did the atmosphere water harvesting, and yep. they claim, they they were talking about how clean their water is and it's cleaner than this and that. But 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 I know I know water treatment plants that I've been to put other things back into the water, and so I I, I don't know the answer. That's not my area of uh, specialty. So I was just curious if you knew anything about that. 
Well, they do put minerals and stuff like that back into the water. They do do that. And they also do that with desalinization because it right. goes through such a, such a process. But they do add stuff back in. Yep. Okay. Thank you. So, hey, just to, yeah, I'll just, I'll just kind of get a final question here in the last minute or minute and a half we got here, guys. So what can, you know, as the average Joe at home, you know, what can the average person uh, do today uh, in, in the U.S., right here in the United States? What, what advice would you have for the average Joe? Well, uh, I have three simple ones. Um, one of the things is just obvious. Look to conserve water in your home. And you can do that through simple practices, like not running the water while brushing your teeth, only washing clothes and running the dishwater when fully loaded. Uh, and, and checking toilets, faucets, pipes for, lake, for leaks regularly uh, goes a long way. Um, I'd also say that when you're disposing of, of any substance that could be considered hazardous or even medications, to make sure you're properly doing it in accordance with the with the laws and proper disposal requirements versus pouring them down a fixture drain or onto the ground or into a storm sewer because that can contaminate surface or underground drinking water sources like aquifers, uh, uh, streams, rivers, and so forth. And then finally, I would tell people, participate in your local water board meeting. Um, they share a lot of great information at these meetings, drinking water quality reports. Uh, they also provide information on how to protect drinking water sources like rivers, streams, and aquifers. Right. I don't mean to jump in, but we're getting close to our NBC News Hour, which we have to turn it back to NBC for them. Um, we certainly want to call you back and, and have you back on the show and talk some more in depth. You guys are really interesting and great, and your organization is awesome. Uh, they can go to your website, which is? Uh, ICCSafe, S-A-F-E dot O-R-G. And Rob and Chris, we want to thank you very much for the, for the time this evening. Okay, well, we certainly, we yeah, certainly will get in touch you. with Sabrina, Sabrina and have you back. There's a lot more things we want to talk about. So thanks a lot. Uh, thanks for joining us. And what Chris and I tell all of our listeners every single week, please help keep our planet blue. Because if you like green, you got to have the blue. KCAA Loma Linda. The Legacy KCAA 10.30.